The following interview was conducted in the summer of 2021 as part of the first collection of interviews for The Entrepreneur. Welcome to The Entrepreneur, conversations with entrepreneurs who view their past failures as learning experiences rather than setbacks. Today's guest on The Entrepreneur, Barry Hinckley, co-founder and former president of Bullhorn. That old saying is A students work for B students and C students run the world because C students take the risk because they're comfortable getting C's over and over again. And if they get an A, it's like, whoa, I got an A, this is awesome. I graduated from Boulder with a 248. I mean, that's right in the, right in the sweet spot there, isn't it? <laughs> now here's the host of The Entrepreneur, Ashley Breed. It never ceases to amaze me how you your brain works and just how I mean you're like a shark that keeps swimming. Well, you got to keep you got to keep swinging away, right? And you you know you, you want to know about failure, like you know I deal with failure every single day, like every day. Part of being an entrepreneur is it, it's being comfortable with failure and being comfortable with a lot of failure until you get lucky enough to succeed. And the only way you get lucky enough to succeed, unless you're lucky enough to catch lightning in a bottle, which very few people, you know, create Instagram. Or Facebook, oh, well, you know, most people most people have to grind it out for years. You know, I mean, even barstool sports, seventeen years, right, grinding it out before they became an overnight success. So there's a lot of failures along the way to that, and you know, I'm comfortable with that. And you know, I keep trying and I keep innovating, and you know, sometimes people listen and sometimes they don't. So, do you think though that every single is that is failure or a comfort a comfort with failure something that every entrepreneur should have or have that constitution for? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You know, it, and in fact, I've dealt with entrepreneurs even recently that quit. You know, that, you know they they thought they wanted to start a company and they thought they wanted to be an entrepreneur, and after three months of of rejection and no. I mean, the first year of starting any business is all rejection. You never get yeses in your first year. And, you know, they quit after three months. You just couldn't, couldn't handle the failure. And, and, and you know, that, that, that panel we were on for Babson, you moderated, you know, one of the wisest things I ever heard about failure was the, the founder of Chicken and Rice Guys when he said his experience was that A students are very uncomfortable with failure, which is why there's not as many A students that are entrepreneurs because, you know, A students are used to programmatically climbing the ladder. And if you say, listen, this is how you get ahead. It's programmatic. And you follow these steps and you will end up, you know, passing go and collecting $200. They're very comfortable with doing that, but they're not comfortable with potentially getting a C because <laughs> that's not on the path. So they're not comfortable with the risk and the failure that's inevitable. Which is why, you know, that old saying is, you know, A students work for B students and C students run the world because C students take the risk because they're comfortable getting C's over and over again. And if they get an A, it's like, whoa, I got an A. It's not. Well, so would you say, I mean, is that something that you would characterize yourself as, as a quote unquote C student? Well, yeah, I graduated from Boulder with a 248. I mean, that's right in the, right in the sweet spot there, isn't it? <laughs> it took me five years to do it. <laughs> I mean, some of it is... But I did work full-time and ran a company on the side. So, you know, there's that. You had sort of an, an intellectual curiosity. I think you took bigger risks while you were there. It's a prioritization, I think, right? That helps to mod med mitigate some of that risk or... Well, up. I also made a mistake in college. You know, I, I went and got a liberal arts degree because I didn't really... You know, it was 1984. I didn't really have any counseling on what I should do. My parents just said, you know, get your ticket. It was that old school kind of mentality. And, you know, I, I got there and I was taking a liberal arts degree and it was basically like high school 2.0. It was not engaging, more English, more history, you know, you know, it wasn't really that exciting. I should have, you know, done an undergrad business degree and I probably would have been a lot more engaged, but I didn't. 
So then you started a business in college. I think I've heard this before, but tell me. Yeah. You ever heard of those co-ed naked lacrosse shirts? Oh, was that you? Yeah. Well, a kid from Princeton came up with it and we, we made them and just sold them and distributed them. Yeah. I bet you made a mint on that. Everybody and their mother wore those t-shirts in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. We did well. We did very well on that. So how did you get, you just saw everyone buying up the t-shirt, saw it, or how did you begin this business, I guess? Well, I already had a t-shirt company and I was, you know, I was selling and making t-shirts for fraternities and sororities. And then I got into these vending carts and shop, and uh, Colorado has a lot of outdoor shopping malls and walking malls that had these vending carts was selling tourist t-shirts. And it was a good little business and it just kept growing and eventually I had 13 employees. And then that was the last one to get paid. Everyone got paid but me. I actually didn't end up making that much money. But the co-ed Nick Lacrosse got them, came my way, and they needed something to make them. And, you know, we just started making them and just kind of grew from there. So it's one of those things that, like, activity breeds activity. Like, you know, you work hard enough, long enough, and you're going to get lucky. <laughs> so that kind of, like, fell into my hands. I can't and, take it for inventing it. But And then what? I mean, so you ran that during college, and then you moved on to doing something else, or you ran that for a few years? Well, then I went into the family bow business, which was, you know, I guess kind of a blessing. Yeah. I had thought I was going to do that my whole life. And then literally the year I got into it, they they had a luxury tax. The federal government put a 10% tax on building boats and expensive cars and airplanes. And, you know, the goal was to stock it to the rich guy when he buys his boat. But the, the opposite happened. Rich guys just went to Europe and bought their boats. And all the Americans that picked up a hammer and toolbox every day and built the boats all got laid off. We went from building 18 boats a year to two. So my family business was devastated. And so... Go wild on after four or five years of struggle. I was like, Dad, this sucks. And so I got into computers, sort of self taught me, you know, found my way that way. And the rest is kind of history. I mean, the story does not start or stop there. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in what I mean, that, so you began, and how did you even start in computers after realizing? I mean, so you acknowledge some type of failure or that you didn't see passion or a future with the boat building business. And it's heartbreaking. Well, there was no future. It was dead, right? And in the government, it took five years to repeal the tax. And by that time, you know, we had 29 boat builders on the island that grew up with in Maine. And by the time it was over, there was three or four left. I mean, they, they, they killed 75% of the industry and it never came back. So, you know, I had a Coast Guard license and I was, you know, really good sailor. And so I got a job for a, a digital mapping company in, in Rockland, Mass. And I was, they had just started a digital division and they asked me if I wanted to join that division. And it kind of grew and that company got sold. And then after that, you know, I didn't have any money. So I went to work for BBN, Bolt Baronic and Newman, which is the nation's first internet company in Cambridge. And they had a really good, they were kind of a quasi, they were, did a lot of government work. And so they had a really good like internet training program. So I went to that and that's kind of where I learned my, the nuts and bolts of the internet. And then from there, we got bought by Verizon and it just was, it was no fun. I was working for a big phone company. So I, I sat in my cube. No one even talked to me for like two months. And I wrote the business plan for Bullhorn and recruited a couple guys out of there. And we started Bullhorn from there. And that was, Bullhorn was just born, made, born out of the fact that you knew, you saw a, a need to help companies manage their, or make recruiting a better process. For well, you. you know, it started as a marketplace. It, it started as Upwork, what Upwork is today, right? But it was too early, right? It was, it was mostly for creative talent, but also for technical talent. You know, if you're looking for, the whole world was building a website in 1999, right? So a lot of people were looking for freelance talent. They didn't need a full-time web developer. So we built a marketplace that you could, if you're looking for freelance, you know, creative talent to build your website, you could, but we couldn't monetize the deal. We couldn't get 
we everyone would just go around the system and work directly. They'd make the match and then it would leave us in the dust. We couldn't monetize it. So, you know, we ran out of money, went broke, and then we just had to pivot. And we found that we had this really good technology for representing candidates. And, you know, uh, a staffing company said to us, if you built a CRM to go with us, it would be a great tool for us to use. And this was the emergence of software as a service. And we were all web at that point in time. So we were one of the first software as a service plays. And it kind of came together. I mean, it was, we grounded out and then the dot-com crash happened literally right after we got our first couple of customers. Can you- and, and we had to live through that. That was, the, you know, talk about the valley of death. And you were one of that. first venture investments, right? What's that? You were one of GE's first venture investments. Well, GE does a lot of this, of the pension group. Yeah. GEPT, which is the pension trust, you know, they, they actually started dabbling in the dot-com era. And then once the crash came, they just shut it down. They tried to shut us down. Actually, they, I still have the letter upstairs with a sending a certified letter shutting my business down. I just never returned it. Didn't talk to them for two years. And yeah, no, I went and hit him. I, we all left and hit, left because the, they came and tried to shut the building down. We all ex- went to our part, back to my place and hid. And then they, they finally left. Just waited about a couple of days. They left. And then we went back and kept building the business. Then they ended up getting a huge return on their money down the road. <laughs> so it worked out for them. But, you know, and I'm friends with them today. We're still, we laugh about it today, but at the, at the time it wasn't very funny. Well, I think the risk profile was different back then and everybody got real burned from the dot-com bust. I mean, there was a lot of hesitation, I'm sure. As charming as the founders are, what did you think? How did you characterize kind of the dot-com? Or were you just too busy in the middle of building your business to even kind of notice that it was all falling apart? No, I was not too busy to notice my world looking crash. Now it was brutal. It was brutal. Um, it was brutal. I mean, it's kind of like it is now. I mean, I'm the event software business. I mean, it's, you know, I, all events are canceled. So it was punishing. You know, I, the pendulum swung. So it, like money was really easy to get and then money was really hard to get. And we had to make this decision. So like, a lot of people said, okay, you guys have some traction. Things are going well. You know, we'll bankrupt the company. We'll refund it. You can wipe the cap table clean. We'll give you X percentage, which would have been better for us. But we would have had to screw all the early investors. And so even though all the early investors didn't show up and help us in this difficult time, except for like two. And there were individuals, not institutions. All the institutions walked away from it. We said, we just can't do that to people. So we took a huge bath on, you know, dilution and did a deal. You know, we acquired a company that had failed that had cash on the balance sheet. It was, it was a great deal for the company we acquired because they were going to go broke and lose all their money. It was a great deal for our investors, kept them on the, on the raft without any punitive measures, which would have been more, you know, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot and the VC was doing it, I mean, they would have put the hammer down. But we kept everyone alive and everyone ended up getting a return and we got really deluded over it. But, you know, I sleep at night, you know. You and your founders all have, is that the sort of, did you guys deliberate a lot on this decision or was it kind of in a way? No, we didn't even, wasn't even a question. We were all like, this is the right thing to do. We're all, we all come from really good families, you know, and I, and, you know, and, and I'm not talking about it in an economic way, just like, good values. All this, the three of us just had really good parents, like all you know, all six of the parents would just raised us to constantly be focused on doing the right thing. I think that's why we worked together so well for so long. It sounds, I was going to ask kind of that dynamic. You had two other founders? Yeah, Art Pappas and Roger Colvin. So was it ever, so you always had a two-thirds majority voting of some sort or were there, how did you guys make decisions as a threesome? Yeah, we just, yeah, you know, we just worked it out. You know, what was the right, what was the right thing to do? It, it never really came down to a vote. It always came down to an agreement. 
Did you have major differences philosophically on growing the company in certain ways or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to go into general CRM in 2004, you know, because I'm a salesman and I want to sell more stuff and, you know, finding a, you know, a, a staffing company to sell to, you know, there's only 150 in the Boston area and at any given time, maybe 10 are on the market, right? Versus everyone needs a CRM. So I, and Art didn't want to, that was, a, you know, that was a big disagreement we have. And he, he controlled the tech stack. So we didn't go that way. You know, interestingly, you know, he kind of lasts, you know, years later in 2016, seven, 2017, he, he decided to go general CRM, but they ended up failing because it was too late. You know, the, the market was already crowded. He's still there with Bullhorn today. Yeah, Art still runs Bullhorn today. Roger and I left. Interesting. But that was your thought on strategic direction, you know, for Yeah, I and mean, that's one example. We had some, you know, you know, you're always gonna have disagreements, you know. I mean, the sales guy and the product guy are always gonna have a natural tension. I'm talking to the customer saying this is what they want, this is what they want. And he's like, you know, it, you know, there's not always agreement there, but you know, we agreed more than not, which is why the company was successful. And did you guys also have similar risk profiles as entrepreneurs or were were no. No. Totally opposite. Arts. Art and Raj are, I think Raj is kind of the middle risk, which is interesting because he was the CFO. Art is the least risk tolerant, but he's a really good manager. Like he, his, his success is picking one thing, sticking to one thing and just crushing. And, you know, I, you know, I mean, look at me now, I'm running a CRM company, you know, trying to develop a new way to vote online. And I started, you know, I started, you know, a homeschool network in November, you know, lucky for me. It was five months before the whole world started homeschooling. So that was kind of a home run. But, you know, I like risk. I like being out there. I like trying new things. And, you know, my whole thing is I'm trying to do as much as I can while I'm here. Because <laughs> when I love old people, I spend a lot of time with them. What, you re- what, what they always say to me is they don't regret stuff they did. They always regret stuff they didn't do. So do you have any regrets or what uh, things you would like to do that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I want to live in Europe and learn a second language like French or German. I think I'd like to do that eventually. Uh, one of the minor regrets I had was that I lived in England when I was expanding up Yacht Me, I mean, Bullhorn over there. I was divorced at the time and I couldn't bring my kids. I really would have liked to raise my kids in Europe a little bit. That would be really great culturally for them to see that side of the world. You know, that's where, you know, a lot of us come from historically. So I think that's a, that's a nice balance that is, would be good for any American, you know, because they're obviously Europe has a really strong influence on the world. So yeah, I'd like to live over there. I think, you know, after Yami gets bought in a few years, we'll probably do that. Bridget and I were talking about moving to Germany and France for a while. She's German. So that would also make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. My mom's German. She's German. So there's definitely a connection there. But now you brought up when you were, look, we were sort of building a beachhead when you were with Bullhorn back in the early aughts over in Europe, correct? Yeah, I was in, I was in Europe 2008 to 2010. Got, and that's when, so... This was before or after the big uh, exit for Bullhorn? Before. Got it. Got it. Because you eventually brought Bullhorn to a $100 million exit from... Yeah, I mean, it got bought. I mean, I, I, I didn't bring it there. I mean, it was a team effort. You know, I mean, I helped build the company that got bought. Yeah, that's the way I'd put it. And then you were deciding what to do next. And that's when you decided to run for governor senator in... Um, yeah, U.S. Senate. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> but, you know, I I am passionate about this country. And I do believe, you know, if you aren't involved, you know, get involved with politics, because if you don't, they're involved with you. And you know, I mean, a dad, you know, I, I'm not, not comfortable with the debt 
that, that we're saddling our kids with. I just don't think it's okay. I and mean, I used to give, I gave a lot of speeches to schools and, and kids, and I would always remind them that, you know, one trillion, se- uh, one, one trillion seconds, just to put it into perspective, you know, uh, how much money we're borrowing is 32,000 years. So it's a lot. And so we're just throwing it around like it's bubble gum. And so I ran on that. I'm glad I did. You know, I can look back that I tried, but it was not a good thing for my career. That's for sure at all. People thought I was nuts. Like, you know, especially when you just have a big exit, you're supposed to go do the next big thing and get paid a lot of money to do it. And I took, you know, essentially three years off and spent a bunch of money doing something that accrued zero value to me financially or my family or anything else. So I'm glad I did. It was a great experience. I wouldn't do it again. But you um, do the same thing. It could have been a startup, another idea that you funneled all money into that. Yeah. Actually. I just always had that itch. I always had that itch. You know, my great six great grandfathers ago was the commander of the Minutemen in Concord, Colonel James Barrett. I'm named after him, Barry. And so, you know, I think, and I was also born on April 18th. So there's something in me about that whole revolutionary spirit. You know, when your grandfather commanded the Minutemen at the North Bridge in front of the British, and you're born on that exact day, there's something, I always went to that parade, and there's something in me that I really wanted to be a, you know, an activist in that way. And my thing was dad, and it also school choice. I mean, I think it's a real, it's really sad what we're doing, which is why I started an education company. It, you know, I, the amount of money we're spending on public education and the poor results we're getting is, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's a waste, you know, of, of many children's futures, right? Because our kids are great, but they're just not getting the educations they deserve through our government school system. Amen. So, you know, I, I do have that activist thing. It's kind of, I think I so. it sounds like, I mean, I tie from that, you know, the revolutionary part of it more than the service aspect in some regards. I mean, I think it sounds like, you know, you guys are passionate, fighting for what you believe in, wanting to, wanting good ideas and good things to prevail. I mean, to me, that's so much, in, you know, that character, that spirit, who's to say that your great grandfather wouldn't have been an entrepreneur or, or isn't? Or well, he was. Yeah. Or he was. Right. I mean, come on. They were pushing, you know, the American, you know, you know, blueprint. I mean, that was revolutionary at the time, which is why I called it a revolution. I mean, that's hugely entrepreneurial to say, no, we're not going to have a, a king or queen top-down system. We're going to have a, a system, you know, by election and representation. And that, that was that was very entrepreneurial. And that you know, turned out to be one of the best, you know, business decisions anyone's ever made in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I thought it was very, and, you know, and talking about entrepreneurial, they're not only risking their treasure, they're risking their life. When you rose up against the crown, they came to your house, they put your family in it, they locked it, they burned it up with you in it. I mean, there were high stakes. You know, that's a lot higher than, you know, losing some money. Well, but sometimes I think with, yes, it is. But I also think sometimes people invest so much of themselves and so much of their identity into these ideas and into these startups. They're their whole life. They put all of their stakes on it. And no, it's not for crown or country, but sometimes the stakes can feel that high. And so I guess the question would be, what is, how does a revolutionary think about those stakes and going? Well, I mean, the key is not to go all in, right? Because <laughs> you, you got you to live to fight another day. It doesn't do you any good to die, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, I do tell my, you know, with Yacht Me, my company, which has been, you know, five years grinding it out and it's finally getting traction in, you know, where the event software business and now all events are canceled. I mean, talk about a body blow right as you cross the finish line or, you know, the starting line in, in some respects, because we're now, you know, selling and onboarding and all that stuff, you know, and I, and I have told, you know, my employees and my customers that, you know, I'm like Cortez, I have burned the ships. There's no looking back. We are, we are going forward on this one, but you can't ever put yourself in the position that you, there's none of you left. You know, you gotta, you gotta 
You got to keep you. Because without you, there's, there's no family. There's no dream. No, and you know, I've worked with you before, and I think one of the things that always stands out for me is you are unslappable. Even in those five years of grinding it out, and I wasn't there for Bullhorn, but I imagine it's the same. You always approach every meeting every day as though this is the day, nothing, you know, it doesn't feel like the 500th day of grinding it out. It feels like the first day of school, and we're here to learn, and we're here to win. Yeah. It's, I don't know how you do it, but I think it's one of the rare qualities of an entrepreneur to never lose the passion and wake up every day with, you know, you're not doing the same thing. It's always interesting and it's always a winning formula. And well, I always look at it as every meeting as an opportunity to, to get on base, to to get a hit, you know, to score a touchdown. I always look at, I look at everything I do as an opportunity and sometimes I strike out and sometimes I get on base and score. And sometimes, you know, I string a good week together and, you know, sometimes I don't, but I see opportunity in, in gray clouds, you know, I, I tend to run in when things are disruptive. I mean, this time right now, you know, I'm talking to some of the largest companies I could ever imagine talking to about Yacht Me now that if it wasn't for this disruptive time we're in, I probably wouldn't be having the conversations for two or three years. But because the deck's just been shuffled and there's kind of some battlefield promotions happening, if, if you will, right now, which is, you know, what happens in very disruptive, you know, dislocations like this. But even still, you know, external factors, I think, I don't think you're a quitter. You know, I don't think that you've ever sort of thrown in the towel or gotten sick of, yep, it's another, you know, three years that we need to grind this out. It's you never look at it with any feeling of fatigue. And I, I think that that's the most so admirable. Well, it's probably a form of mania, quite frankly, but <laughs> call it what you will. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I. Talk to me a little bit more about it. I mean, how do you just kind of, is it pre-programmed in you or do you wake up and make a conscious decision or an intentional decision to, you know, project that attitude or is it programmed inside of the soul? Well, I think, yeah, I remember Donnie Deutsch said to us, you know, when we're starting Bullhorn and went through some tough times, he said, guys, you just have to will it to succeed. And, you know, I looked back after we did that and, and it almost freaking killed me. It took every ounce of energy and, and I, and I don't will things to succeed anymore. I think that's the wrong term. I just believe like, there's some higher power and, and I somehow feel like I have a connection with him or her or whatever it is, but I do believe in the power of the universe. You know, I meditate and I make, I make those connections. And for some reason, I, oh, I just believe, I just have a, a blinding belief that if I stick to my simple formula, I have a very simple formula. I wake up every day. I try to do good things with good people. If you do that, good things will happen. And I just do that over and over again. And and, and when the, you know, it's all, as they say, it's always darkest right before dawn. And I have had a lot of 4 a.m. really, really dark moments. And then the sun comes up, you know, and, so, and I feel like, you know, the universe is constantly teaching me a lesson that if I just persevere, that it'll happen. And so far it has for me, even when, you know, times are tight, like times are really tight right now. I've been finding this company for five years. I haven't had a paycheck in over six. You know, I got kids in private school, you know, and you know, the, the, the COVID comes on and wipes out all my business, but you know, I just, you know, it is what it is. And I just feel there's a lesson in it. And if I keep on keeping on, then, you know, good things. It's inspirational, Barry, honestly, it really is because it's not, you know, it's, it's not put upon. This really is just in your the fabric of you. I don't think that, you know, I mean, it's your mantra, but I don't think you have to repeat it to yourself to remind yourself. I think it's very much ingrained. 
Yeah, you know, it's also I have a really, really great wife, you know? I mean, you know, Bridget, she's fantastic. And she lets me be me. And, you know, one, I found that one of the keys to a successful relationship is to be in a position where you can self-actualize, you know, and she's going out with a crazy entrepreneur that, you know, is trying to reinvent voting while, you know, scraping along and building a business and starting a school on the side. But she's all in and totally supports me. And, you know, having that type of support, you know, I didn't have that type of support. I didn't have that type of support when I was building Bullhorn. And I think that's one of the reasons that I, I tapped out got exhausted after 10 years because I didn't have, I couldn't go home and recharge my batteries and feel, you know, valued and supported. I think that that's a real game changer. I think that's a real different differentiator for you in these next, in this next decade or however, you know, in this next phase for you. I do. I I think you're right on, you know, sometimes that missing piece is having the support network. I mean, you've always got your friends, your entrepreneurial networks, you've got professional colleagues, the, the whole network. But I think there's something to be said for having that person at the end of the day that you can lean into and lean on um, and really kind of. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it makes such, I mean, it's such a difference. It makes such a difference. I mean, it's also the responsibility thing. Like, you know, okay, you know, I just got married a little while ago. You know, it's, you know, you know most people are 54 years old. I said, get a, put a charge on here. You know, most people, you know, would be kind of like planning for retirement in 10 years. And I'm like, honey, we're all in on this business. Stewart died. Are you in? You she's know, in. he's in. That's great. Well, I'm really happy for you, Barry. I'm thrilled to see kind of all of the progress that's been made. Both the cool horn, your school, the voting mechanism. How are we characterizing that? Personal success before. Anyhow, it's always a pleasure and a treat to talk to you um, it's you're constantly one of my biggest inspirations no star type people so. hi thanks well you know it's a uh, nice thing about i guess what i do is i get to meet a lot of awesome people like you so you know i it, it's uh i love it i'm a people person you know I, I i i get a lot of energy from you know engaging with all kinds of different folks and so right back at you all right barry keep well stay safe and talk to you soon yeah. all right bye ass Thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about The Entrepreneur, including booking information, please visit pod617.com slash entrepreneur. The Entrepreneur is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.